This week's sponsor is Big Red Eye Investigative Services. Do you suspect your lover of cheating on you? Do you think your coworkers are planning behind your back? Did a halfling steal one of your circular bands? Well, here at Big Red Eye Investigative Services, we can get you the information you desire. No job too big. No client too small. No wizard too gray. Our employees work tirelessly to follow your leads. From our headquarters atop the big spiky mountain, we can find it. That's Big Red Eye Investigative Services. We find what is precious to you. Big Red Eye Investigative Services, not available in Sparkly Elf Treeland. This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, and you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willard for letting us use his music at our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. Welcome to the 494th episode of the Misdirected Mark Podcast. Tonight, we're going to be discussing some of our favorite moments in tabletop role-playing games. But first, my name is Jerry. I'm Chris. And I am Old Man Logan. No weird name again, huh? No weird name again. We are Sans Phil. Yes, we are Sans Phil. Phil is out of town, so yep. uh, we are recording without him. We are Phil-less. We are Phil-less. Phil is in Pandaland right now. Phil is in Pandaland right now. Pandaland. Do, 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 do. Bow. I feel like that's probably not the theme for Pandaland. <laughs> that's but. not the theme for Pandaland. <laughs> hey, do you know Sandstorm? I've never heard Sandstorm. Yes, you have. Trust me. Now we're having fun. Took me a second to see which one you were doing there. Okay. That was more Crazy Train that you just went I know. That's what I was doing. No, I was doing Sandstorm. That was the beginning of Sandstorm. Sort of. Although, close enough. Oh, look, another car. Yeah, Misdirected uh, Mark, musical tra- tra- travesties. Uh, travesties, <laughs> yes, that is correct. Oots, 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 boots and pants and boots and pants. Bicycle chair, bicycle chair. <laughs> okay, so let's do the temperature it's check. one of those nights. Temperature check time it is. Yes. I feel pretty good. Chris? I'm fine. I'm good. <laughs> All right, let's go to the announcements. Let's do you have any announcements? Thing. Um, I would like to announce that we are having a ball and this show might be fun. This, might, this show might be fun. <laughs> this show is always fun. We have a Patreon you can, you can patronize. Patronize, yes, patron, do. you can patron, not patronize. Patron. You can also patronize it if you patronize, because then you'll get access to the Slack room. Where I you believe can tell it's us, called patronizing. Yeah, we, where you can tell us how either good or bad we are. Um, if you are listening to this episode and you didn't listen to last week's episode, and this is your first time here, we talk about tabletop role-playing games. Yeah, yes. That's what we do here. We t- tend to talk about story a lot, too, because I'm here. Yeah. And Jerry's here. Yeah. And then Bob's here. But, like, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Yes, it is. But, yeah, um, MMP, or Patreon, backslash MMP, and you will find the Patreon for the Misdirected Mark. Come and support us. Come and join us. Come hang out with us uh, on Fridays. On Friday afternoons, we have our uh, luncheon. Luncheon. Lunch. Yeah. Yeah. Two yes. with topics of the week. I'm a small there. donation, and you can be one of us. One, one of, of us. One of us. Google gobble. Google gobble. One of us. The one claw. Oh, the claw decides who will stay and who will go. Uh. <laughs> All right. I have no two very different movies. I know we went. We went. That was very different. We we went. Uh, we went a little off. I don't actually have a transition for this particular segment because we don't have like a segment for this. Yeah, we don't. We don't have a it's name not really for the segment. A so it's not a workshop. It's not a garage. You got something? It's kind of like a salon. You got maybe. a. You got a button. Um, I used to, but then you changed all the things. I did change all the things. Just a ding. Okay. Just a ding. All right. Sure. So the comfy chair is that we're talking about? Yeah, now? we're going to talk about our favorite game moments today, and and the point of this topic is to bring up one or two moments in games that could be counted as some of our favorite moments in gaming, and then we're going to discuss and pick apart what made them so good because you know this is a show about gaming and game mastering, so we'll talk about why and playing playing games these days. So we'll talk about why 
what uh, Cole has to make them so good and frame, you know, that as tips, ideas, methodologies, whatever, some kind of useful information for you folks to use in your games. I guess I get to start since I'm first and I'm blue. You're blue. All right. So there was a moment in my fourth edition D&D game where um, my players all on their own decided to try and go resurrect one of the characters who died at the end of the first story arc. Now, I had specified many, many times in this fourth edition game that resurrection is very hard. Like, you can't just cast the true resurrection spell or anything like that. Those spells don't exist in this world. So it was on them. They, they decided to do it. Because I was like, you can just make a new character. And they were like, no, 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 let's go, let's go save her. Let's go, let's, go, let's go to the underworld or whatever we have to do. And let's get her back. I'm like, all right. So then I listened to my players and provided the game that they wanted the way that I wanted to play it. Or that we all wanted to play it. So, because this is I'm still pretty early in what I would consider me getting better at game mastering. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think I actually got my chops up to a place where I thought I was any kind of competent until 4th edition came out. Okay. Which is weird to say, because I ran a lot of 3rd edition. I just wasn't very good at it, I don't think. I hate that game. <laughs> so, the thing that was most important to me, I suppose, about this is that I listened to them. Right? Like, I'd never really done that before. Like, I'd always just kind of crafted scenarios and like was like, drop players in, into it and like let them proceed through the scenarios that I, that I had crafted this time they decided on a thing that they wanted to do. So I'm like, all right. And that ended up being an eight session story arc where they went to the shadow fell to find the soul of the person who was trapped by a fallen angel to release them from this prison that they had where others fallen angels were and bring their soul back to then resurrect it by putting it back in their body. It was pretty intense, actually. They really loved that that sequence, and it was fourth edition D anD D. So you know, there's a lot of fighting and all that good stuff too. Mm-hmm. But my fourth edition games were not, I guess, like other people's fourth edition games. I feel like my fourth edition games play a lot more like Thirteenth Age. I don't have any experience with Thirteenth Age. Which game is Thirteenth Age? It's it's the a Rob Heinzo and Jonathan Tweet game that they made after fourth edition. Ah, it was the game that I think they really wanted to make when they made fourth edition, and then they couldn't because of uh, corporate. Okay. I don't actually have anything to prove that. I just am pretty sure that's that's what happened. The 13th Age game had a lot of 4th edition DNA inside of it and some 3rd edition stuff. It, it facilitated more epic storytelling in a way that 4th edition felt like more of a an encounter-driven game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, 13th Age felt more like an actual, there's a campaign, you can go play the campaign, and there's like an ongoing story, and the stuff that you do outside of fighting just matters almost as much as the stuff that you do inside of a fight. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really cool moment in play for me and those are some of the reasons why like they chose and i'd never done that before like i'm just gonna craft something that they want right like they asked for it i'm just gonna give them flesh out some more background about my world and this is a game that we were running every week so i haven't done that in a long time like run a game every week i mean it was like a 50 session campaign and that was like a good you know eight nine ten i forget how many sessions it was a long it was a long time ago now it was like a decade ago um but they saved her and they they brought her back and they resurrected her and then five sessions later killed herself trying to stop a bad guy. Oh. <laughs> it was really funny. Purposely decided to annihilate herself to try to stop a bad guy because she was very displeased with the rest of the party for cutting the head off of a, a sort of a, an ally who was fighting on the wrong side because they were, you know, honor bound to do so. They caught him and then they cut his head off. Hmm. I, I'm kind of split on that because, you know, once you can't trust him to take, to take common sense over honor, then you can't really trust him ever again. Sure, but they'd already beat him. Like they had them. Oh, they, okay. they, they cold-blooded killed them. Oh, no, I th- oh, okay. I thought it was like like in combat and the, no, because I'm like... No, I'm, that wasn't in combat. They beat him. They captured him. The actual like overarching enemy, one of mm-hmm. them was his father who was like the general of the opposing army, mm-hmm. the opposing forces. And they're like, well, if you let us go, we'll give you your son. If not, we were going to kill him. And then he's like, 
kill him. I don't care because he's a cold blooded bastard. So they cut his head off. And this guy was their friend. It was if, weird. If, if, it's, if it's just like, you know, my honor says that I must fight you, even though it's not the thing I should do. You're like, all right, well, then I guess you're going to die. Yeah, you know, this is this is like thing. another one of my favorite moments because afterwards they took his head. They took their they took his head with them and they're like, we're just going to resurrect him. They're like, did you not remember the eight session story arc or nine session story arc that we played where resurrection's really hard? Yeah. <laughs> they all looked at me blankly. And they're like, oh yeah, okay. Maybe we should have thought about that. I don't <sighs> think I've I don't think I've ever actually played in a campaign in all my time playing D anD D where we ever resurrected anybody ever. Really, resurrection or raised dead. We did reincarnation. We did involuntary reincarnation a couple times. We had a GM who had a, um, at a low level game, if somebody ran out of hit points, you could take them to this fountain in the dungeon. And if you dunked them in the fountain, you rolled randomly on the reincarnation table. And that's what uh, they, came, yes. they came back as, um, which is how my low level elven wizard came back as a greater lizard man, which was really interesting. And I've only ran, I think I've only run one game where we had a resurrection and it was similar to yours. We had, we had a player who hated all of the gods and refused to follow any of the gods uh-huh. and ended up sacrificing himself to save the party. And he was in the afterlife and the God of war, the goddess of healing and one of the other gods were like in front of him saying, you know, you know, we will send you back if you will do our bidding. And he basically said, well, fuck you all. Nice. Like, uh, and so the, That's God, a great the, moment. the God of war wanted to like, just tear him apart. And the goddess of healing was, or the goddess of nature that's who it was, is like, we're going to send him back anyway. Why? Because if you see what he does, He's going to do our bidding, even if, right in front of their, they're having this conversation in front of him. He's going to do our bidding, whether we, even if we don't want him to, or even if he doesn't want to, he always does my bidding. He just doesn't know that it's my bidding he's doing. And he's like, God damn it. Sent him back and sent him back with something that made all the followers of the goddess of nature recognize him as one of their, uh, Oh one. man, <laughs> he must've so, been so mad. And, and the player played it up really well. The player loved it, but yeah, that, that's, that's, that's not great. as fun. That's about as far as, but it was something where I told him, like, do you want to go back? He's like, I'd love to go back. I'm like, okay. He's like, my character wouldn't do it. I'm like, great. This is what we're going to do. But this is what I'm going to give you as kind of a thing. He's like, oh, that'll be a lot of fun to play. It'll give him something. Yeah. It's a, it's a foil for him to play with. It gave him one more thing. Yep. And, and the fact that he became friends with a lot of these followers of the nature goddess, which also like they're good people. So he doesn't want to, he, the only reason he doesn't like him is because they follow the nature of God. It's not that they're really good people. So he has to help them. That's you know, fun. Speaking fun. of, since we're talking about resurrections, yeah. as I brought up resurrection yeah. in this, which wasn't really my point, but I'm, I'm perfectly fine pivoting to that. Why yeah. I never really thought about like resurrection and role-playing games. I mean, this was one of the first times that I'd done it where it wasn't just like somebody cast a spell and they come mm-hmm. back to life until we got to dungeon world. And then when we started playing dungeon world. There's, there's the black gates and yep. black gates is essentially you died and then you are sent back by a god or the whatever death death yeah. sends you back but in our game in the area peaks it was Sorry. some one of these terrible gods sends you back yeah and with usually some semblance of power or something hanging over you like they got mm-hmm. something on you at that point yeah i really love that i don't know about you bob oh i think it's a great uh, a great thing to play with mm-hmm. it, it it gives you a lot of opportunities to, to to have a lot of fun as a character when you when you've reached the black gates and got turned back for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, like, no, I don't want to go back. Well, you're going back anyway. Or if it's like, oh, you got to send me back. I'm like, why? Why should I do it? No, it's good role playing fodder. It's a good I, time. I also like the idea that there's a price for resurrection. I think in one of the early editions of D&D, you like lost a point off your constitution. constitution. Yep. yep. And and it also cost like a ridiculous amount of energy it, and so on. It did. Um, or money or something. Money. Where the idea that there's something actually like you come back and you're not quite, you know, what you are. Or you have a... Oh shoot, we had a second character like that. I apologize. Back when I was running Fusion Fantasy, we were using uh, Janelle Jackway's central casting. One of the characters rolled 
that their character died as a <laughs> child and came back. Oh man. And so they came back with a secondary personality in them and they were the rogue, but they were also possessed by the bot, by the spirit of reticular, the barbarian. Oh yeah. And so whenever they blew a will check, instead of going unconscious, reticular took over. Okay. Then basically they, they took over until plot said they were taking over. There was, there was a limit to it. And as reticular, they had some other abilities and reticular's whole goal was to bring his sister's spirit from the deck because he had a sister both sacrificed. She's trapped between worlds and he got stuck in this, in this rogue's body. As soon as he blew his check, he would just jump into reticular, like role-playing reticular. <laughs> That's great. And, and just, and good. often screwed his own character up by doing things that, because reticular was your typical, not too bright, super aggressive. Barbarian. Yeah, yeah. Barbarian. He was a yeah. barbarian. I forgot about that character. The fun part of that was that something I didn't intend. I should have probably figured this out was that eventually the rogue fell in love with the spirit of the sister that when he finally managed to save her and reticular's when reticular spirit fell in the afterlife, he and the sister ended up becoming a couple when he, once they got her a body in the real world again, that's a good story. It, it was all, yeah, it's all, that's it's, pretty it's, good. It, it, was, it was fun, yeah. but that, that was, again, that was very non-standard like you, I think, yeah. I think Resur you made resurrection interesting. I can't stand resurrection and role-playing games. I'm not happy about it. Yeah. And it's understandable because it's, it's not for everyone. It's almost too easy. Right? It's almost too easy. I feel like putting, making it into a story element is a way, way better way mm -hmm. to go with it. We had a similar arc um, back in way back in the day in the the basic D and D campaign I was I was in with my friends back in high school where we went to rescue someone. Um, in fact, I think they ended up going to hell, um, and we went into hell to pull them out. And it was one of those long story arcs, multiple sessions, just kind of an epic kind of a thing. So to me, if you can make it into a story mm -hmm. rather than just roll on the table or make your, make your saving throw for the resurrection or whatever, you know, it, it feels anticlimactic. Mm -hmm. This person died, hopefully dramatically. And, you know, you, you're going to go through something mm -hmm. to get this character back. That, I love that. That's, yeah. To me, that's the way to go. Yep. Good times. Al although in our current game, in our Archmage's Legacy campaign, you guys could just resurrect somebody because it's a high magic fantasy setting. So that makes sense to have like high end. Sure. But you can't do it without like an epic or a legendary light reagent. Exactly. Which means you still have to have a story. Correct. You have to, all you have to do is hunt down a murdered angel. You'll be all set. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Piece right? of cake, right? There are no angels. That's good. <laughs> I'm all in favor of murdering angels. So <laughs> there, are, there are beings that are like angels, but they're really just agents of, of the power of light and Material hope, the light, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the light avatar. I think the other thing about resurrection is that, I mean, first of all, we're going to caveat this by saying, like, I understand that the idea, like, if you're playing, you know, Valheim or Elder Scrolls or something, you need to have characters come back from the dead because yeah, you're playing a game. Those games sure. are Nintendo hard, right? Well, but, not Valheim, but Elder but, Scroll, but they're or, not uh, Elder Elden Ring, I should say. They're video games, you're expected to die yes. and come back in a role playing game. You need those stakes. If you die, there are major consequences. And it's not just you lose 30% of your skill points. And that's what I think makes the games more interesting in a lot of cases. And in games where there's just no resurrection at all, that makes the games even more of a stake and yeah. becomes more important when the players do risk their lives to, to do something. I mean, yeah. how, how many times in Valheim, Chris, have you and I got, 
well, that looks like it's something Man, stupid to do. Let's go do the dumb thing. Yeah, let's go, let's do, the go do the dumb thing. <laughs> and yeah. This is going to be stupid. I mean, we, we wouldn't do that. Well, we might do that. <laughs> yeah. You and I might do another game, Chris. I'm sorry. I'm sure we would. <laughs> not, th- that's not uh, to say, obviously, that that uh, uh, playing a game where death is final and there's no coming back is bad or wrong. No. If you enjoy that, that's awesome. I've played in games where death was final, and I had a good time in the ones that I played, but... If I had to choose which style, I would prefer something where let's do an epic multi-session arc where we go and get this person back because, you know. Because it's a fun story. Because it's a fun story. Yeah. And it's personal. And it's personal, yes. And that's the thing. You got to have those personal stakes that make it interesting. So if you're going to have that resurrection story arc, Mm -hmm. make it important to the characters. Yep. All right. I think that's good enough for me. I enjoyed that. I just want to, I want to throw one more comment on before we move on to Jerry's, Mm -hmm. um, to loop it back around to the favorite moment idea. The fact that you took what the players were saying, you listened to them and said, okay, let's do that. That I think probably helped contribute to that being a favorite moment for some of those players too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because when the GM is open to that kind of activity, like, hey, we've got something that's not on probably your plan at all, something we weren't planning on doing, but we think we should do this. And you go, all right, let's do it. Yeah, when they fought and beat the Shadow Dragon that was out there, they felt pretty good about themselves and then took some of its money. There you go. They killed it and took its stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, in a D&D game? Hmm. It's D&D. Kill the monster, take the treasure, kick the door in. The shadow dragon tried to eat them. It's fine. That's it, fair. That's, tried, that's 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 uh, self-defense. It, you know, talk about talk about tension building and whatnot. It tried to eat them early on. Like they showed up in this in the in the in the shadow fell and this thing tried to eat them while they were like fl- climbing up the side of a cliff. Flew by, snatched one of them. They How rude. Barely, we're climbing that here. person barely survived. Yeah, I know, right? Cuz you know, there's nothing worse than trying to fight on the side of a cliff. Yes. Oh, we talked about motivations for character. I told you about the evil merchant's theory. When I was running Mechton Fantasy or Fusion Fantasy, one of the characters kept saying things like, look over there, evil merchants. How do you know they're evil merchants? Well, because we never attack the good guys, but if we kill the bad guys, we take their money. So if they're evil merchants, we get to take kill them and take their money. You're right, evil merchants. I'm like, that guy's no, no. <laughs> <laughs> they used to have that conversation. They never did it, That's but that was their conversation. Just that was awful. But, which, but there are players that play that way, so it's uh, it's it's out there. So. Yeah, that was one of the first times that I had done the, oh, yeah, I should probably just run the game that they want. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, I could fit it in. I got it ideas. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Jerry, go ahead. All right, I've talked about this many, many times on this show, but I'm going to pitch it again. And this was the great escape race in my Mechton campaign. In my Mechton, the Larini Conspiracy, the players had gotten involved with a crime syndicate. They had a couple of different NPCs they were with. One of the player characters' backstory was that his sister disappeared. They finally found her. She was being held by the head of this crime syndicate in this big high-rise hotel, and they fought their way in there. One of the weapons in the game that's really that's really rare but powerful is the beam saber, basically a lightsaber. Who doesn't love a good lightsaber? Hell and yeah. In the beginning of this escape, the character whose sister got, got kidnapped, they rescued the sister. He and the Imperial spy managed to kill off one of the henchmen who had a beam saber. So now the, the main character, whose character class was literally adventurer, has this, they do this partial rappelling down the center of the hotel into the lobby while fighting bad guys on all sides. The mechanic had run out and disabled most of the vehicles. And so they all ran out and they jumped into what was basically a hover pickup. Was this person's name like Luca uh, Skyrunner? No, no, nothing quite <laughs> that that bizarre. Turned out to be an artificial person later on. 
they jump into basically what's the, there's uh, seven of them in the back of what's effectively a hover, uh, a hover pickup. Okay. And they take off and they're being chased. The only thing left were a couple other hover pickups. These were all in the loading dock. So there's three of these things chasing them and the character just gets out his, his beam saber and decides that he's going to go all uh, Sarlacc pit and start jumping from vehicle to vehicle, taking out all the bad guys, which worked for him. So his name wasn't Lucas Skyrunner, huh? No, but should have been. one of the other characters in the group was basically, if you are familiar with the Isle of Dread, what a Phanaton is, the kind of flying cat monkeys with, 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 they have basically, sure. they, yeah. look, they look kind of like a Yazarian from Star Frontiers, but, but okay, but more cat, basically like a flying squirrel. Flying cat monkey worked for me, I suppose. So he jumped and failed his role, but spent a luck point to open up his wing flaps. And, but of course they're traveling like 80 miles an hour. So he flies out of the back of this thing. One of their player characters had basically the Batman, the animated series gun, but he had goop on the end of it, shoots him. So now they've got a flying cat monkey kite behind their vehicle. Yeah, that sounds about right. So you've got one person who's got the kite in one hand and a machine gun in the other. Somebody's driving. Somebody's in another vehicle taking on bad guys with a, with a beam saber. One of the characters was busy making homemade explosives and throwing them at stuff. And they've all got to race through and try to get through a narrow gap while dodging cars. What ended up happening is the players were asking me questions. And whenever they came up with something, I just went with yes. It was one of the first times I, I was like, whatever they say, you know, are there lots of cars that are dodge around? Yes, there are. Um, are there any explosives in this vehicle? Yeah, there's a couple of them. Are there things I can use to, to make a, a chain? Yes. And both good and bad things, we just kept going with it. They just kept getting more and more excited by this until they finally managed to take everybody out, escape, get to their starship, get off planet. The strong guy at one point, I think, grabbed onto the other truck and was holding it side by side so somebody could jump into it. Everybody got to do their thing. Mm-hmm. And this was not the encounter I was planning. It was one that they basically created by their situation. Back when I was still heavily scripting adventures, I would write the adventure up ahead of time. And so it was one of the first games that I realized just keep the main focus on what the what the main point of the adventure was, but just let them run. But the more stuff they wanted to do, I just kept trying to let them, let them try it. It didn't always work. That's how we kept having... And because Mechton has luck points, there's a lot of like flexibility for rules on the fly kind of thing. It's a cyberpunk red. It's the same, same game. System. Okay. It just worked in everybody. We, we talked about this for two years afterwards, where we talked about how much fun they had in it and how exciting it was um, and how it really felt like an, like an anime action sequence. And when you're, when your session ends up as part of campaign lore mm-hmm. years down the road, you did something right or maybe horribly wrong, but usually right. <laughs> So the first thing that I thought was that really made me think about why this worked was that I didn't try to stop them from doing anything. I didn't really crunch down hard on the rules saying the rules don't say you could do that. It was just, can we do this? Or if something was there, yes, it's there. What are you going to do with it? And that made a difference for for my game, I think. So I have questions. Yes. So this, this chase sequence that you had put up, was it really a chase sequence or was it just a battle that the environment was a bunch of hover cars moving at high speed in the middle of space, in the middle of, in the middle of the air. It was both. I didn't have a clock on the table, but I did decide that they had like 15 rounds before something else was going to happen. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew they wanted them to get to a certain point and they knew that they had a certain time. That's why there was the narrow gap they had to race towards. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit of a chase. Was it like 15 rounds before reinforcements showed up or before they got closed off and caught or uh, what? Before they couldn't get to the starport. 
Okay. In which case... Then it's a chase. Yeah. In which case, my plan was that they would have to find another way off planet. So the, the goal was to get to the get to the gap, but could they get to the gap without destroying everybody or did they have to destroy everybody? To get no, to the they could have gotten to the gap without... They probably could have gotten to the gap faster without destroying everybody. Oh, so they just chose to destroy everybody. They just, uh, I mean, let's face it. That's a, ch that's a chase. What happens if they would have gotten to the gap before... What, what happens if they got to the gap? They just get away then? Then they just get away. Yeah, it's totally a chase. Okay. Yeah. I was curious. Yeah. Uh, I, th I, I think that most of that sequence was initially uh, started by I've got a cool beam saber. I wonder what I can do with it. Sure. Yeah. And the rest of the players were like, yes, we want to see what you can do with it. Uh, By this, all means, this, show us what you can do with the beam saber. This was also my college group. And so it was the first group I played with that were super cooperative. After their first year, they were never in competition with each other to see who was the well, coolest. They were just playing the game and having a good they time. Good, they were actually more interested in seeing what other, what other characters could do. Uh, in the early 80s, I played with a lot of characters who were like, oh, You've got a plus one sword. How come I don't have a plus one sword? Well, sure, because, yeah. you know, we're all teenagers. Teenagers in the early 20s people are very self-centered. Where the college group was... Heck, heck 27-year-old Chris was pretty self-centered. Yeah. <laughs> heck, maybe 37-year-old Chris was pretty self-centered. Well, not... You would... Yeah, but today, if you saw, like, if Bob got something cool in the game, you wouldn't well, no, be... of course. You wouldn't right? be, like, why don't I have that? You'd be, hey, Bob... Show us the cool stuff you could do with that cool yeah. thing yeah. he's got. Because we're telling stories. Because it's yeah. not about being the coolest person in the tale. It's about telling the coolest possible story together. And I think that's the second part of it. I think you're pointing out exactly why this worked. Was that this this went from being a simple combat encounter to being a storytelling encounter. Sure. Yeah. Like oh. everybody's doing interesting things. And, mm -hmm. and then it's not about. And you did the thing. Which I, having played games with you. I'm very aware that you are very much a yes and please. Yes and and go big or go home kind of game master. Yeah. So that makes sense that it, it turned into more of a pulpy encounter than even I tend to run. Well, but this was, I think, the first time it happened. That's, that's is, your first time? I think this is the first time. Oh, that's cool. Uh, this was also the Mechton campaign where nobody got in mechs. Unfortunately, a Mechton, if you're not a Mechton pilot, you don't get in a mech because you will just die. That's okay. It sounds like you just play a cyberpunk game that way. So I, I, yeah, I Space opera game? I, I, I played anime. I sure, just played yeah. anime. That's there you go. Anime space opera. The the funniest anime, part. Anime, anime, space anime, space opera, anime, cyberpunk. Anime, cyberpunk, anime adventure. And something I, I realized after the fact of, with that campaign was that Mechton actually had a weird mechanic that helped you run it without mechs. In Mechton Empire, which is their like science fiction it's thing. Like the strangest idea for a game. Like our game is called Mechton where you pilot mechs, but you know, you can totally play the game without having to pilot mechs. Well, cause it was, cause it was the first, it was the first anime game. No, man, there. I get it. Right. They, no, they never said don't pilot mechs. But when you got to Mechton Empire, they had the big, like, space cruiser Yamato starships. Yeah, okay. And there was, like, a page of rules on them if you wanted to play, but the whole idea was that it's very rarely ever interesting to spend a lot of time with the mechanics of the starship. They should be a backdrop full of cool stuff. You should just have a line drawing. If you want to have a starship versus starship battle, that's what you should do. The starships generally don't, like, the, you don't use the wave motion gun against a single X-wing kind of thing. Yes. Remember, you, you probably won't hit it. And there were all these things about how to use the starship if the players want to want to get involved with it, how to have them set out the starship, or if the players want to just have it as a background set piece that's flavor. And then take that and translate it right down to the mech level and that's be like, do the same thing with the mechs, you're done. There you and, go. And I, that's what I realized after the after I ran that campaign, I'm like, I just turned the mechs into one of those backdrop shot starships. Sure. There you go. They were there doing stuff. They could use them, but they very rarely got into combat with them. They were much more interested in being pulpy heroes. I'll be honest. Yeah. Um, I, I'm one of these days I will run a mech game. One yeah. of these days. So that's what I got. So I think that's why it worked. I think that's what I learned from it. And as a GM, it's still, even even now I'm like excited about remembering how yeah, cool man, it was. Yeah, man, that's being a fan of the players, right? Like, yeah. all right, you want to try this thing? Go ahead. There's probably some semblance of a consequence here, but I'll figure it out. 
it also helps if you have some semblance of system. So this is the this is the point where I'm like having system mastery actually helps with a few mm -hmm. things. If you have system mastery, that doesn't mean you have rules mastery. That means that you understand the system enough that you can make calls on the fly to make the game feel like the game still while people can try it and do what they want to do. Yeah. To me, that is that is the definition of system mastery. It sounds like like you had it for that game and for that particular moment. Yeah. It, it's it's a weird situation where you have a game with something like luck points or something on that line. When you get to the end of a of a session and everybody's down to one or two luck points, they've been trying things. That tends to indicate that they've had a chance to do cool things. They may not have all worked, no, but they had a chance. They tried, and sometimes just having the opportunity to try some stuff is enough to keep you invested. Like I have no idea what flying cat monkey guy was trying to do. I think he was just trying to jump from one vehicle to another. Sure, but he ended up as a kite with a laser gun. Yeah, <laughs> that's basically, yeah. <laughs> and that is intention. But it worked, and it was something people remembered. That sounds awesome. Like it sounds like a really cool sequence. Sometimes well. the biggest memories are born out of something that goes wrong, mm -hmm. but still ends up working. And those are great. Yeah, absolutely. I'm pretty sure that's Gree's entire th philosophy. Yeah, that is that is true, man. That is that Gree happens. to a T. Tell All me right. about the City of Graves. All right, so when I ran my third edition game, I started running a third edition game. Everybody died when they encountered the Beholder, so I started running a 3.5 game. The original premise for the whole campaign was I was reworking the Lost Kingdoms campaign pack from Al-Qadim. Because Al-Qadim had a bunch of really good set-piece adventures that formed a campaign. And I just manipulated them and did things with them. One of the adventures in there involves the players going into a city that is cursed by the small gods. I had already had this encounter set up. And then my players did something where they ended up getting chased by an army. Along the way, they encounter this ghost of a dog, which is part of the plot. The plot of the original adventure was there's a city that got cursed by the gods. It got cursed because the high priestess was mucking around and being selfish. So the gods cursed the city because the, the high priest all supported her. And so it's just a city of tombs and temples and everybody that died got put into a tomb with all sorts of funerary urns and a greater ghoul snuck in basically like a, like a half genie, half ghoul thing. If you're not familiar with it, basically you think about it like an undead genie came in and was breaking into all the tombs and stealing everything and broke into a tomb of a, a potter who had a dog he loved, who was also there. And so the dog spirit managed to escape the city and was trying to find somebody to come and help uh, basically put down the, the ghoul and put, and, you know, basically keep it from destroying all the, the souls in the city. First of all, players meet ghost dog without knowing why they just followed a dog. They're like, okay, ghost dog's there. Ghost dog needs help. It's the ghost of a dog. Puppy. We're going to, yep, we're going to follow the puppy. So they followed the puppy for three days, went through this mystical mist into the city. Not only do they find the, they, they beat the bad guy. They also then spend like four weeks rebuilding all the tombs. They took none of the magic. There's like piles of magic items and tool. They took none of that. They put it all back. They're like this is, this is just, this is not who we are. We don't rob tombs. The only living creature in the city was the cursed priestess who's been turned into a Lamia and she meets the players. She's cursed. She can't leave unless she meets certain very particular. She has to do a bunch of things to redeem herself. Basically the players gave her lots of opportunities for this. She gave them some advice on how to stop the, the bad guy. They end up, like, I was expecting them to go in, kill the bad guy, take some treasure leap. Nope, they're there. They made a whole thing about, like, um, some of the restless dead they were able to put back down again. The ghosts they talked to, they talked with her about the history of her city and what she did. And finally, at the end, they go to leave. And you can't take anything with you from the city that was there before they arrived. They take, like, the, the ghouls, magic out of nothing else. And she can't leave. 
except that by this time, one of the player characters has fallen in love with her. And they, go, okay, and, and they come up against the, the small gods. And the small gods say, you can leave. She can't leave. Like, no, no, she's with us. She's coming with us. And I'm expecting that they're either going to leave her behind because these are my a newer girl players. I wasn't sure how tight they were with this whole romantic interest. This is also the campaign where I messed up with some romantic storylines that didn't work. Different story. That happens sometimes. Yep. Or they were trying to fight the gods and they were going to lose. They were going to figure out very quickly they couldn't beat these Can't gods. Can't beat the gods. So what do they do? Well, the gods said, you've got two choices. You either die here or leave her behind. And one of the players just steps up and gives this long speech about how this is just magic and magic is powerful, but magic isn't as powerful as love. If you think you got something more powerful than love, bring it and we'll kick your asses all the way back to heaven. And the gods were like, hmm, okay, you really do feel strongly about this kind of thing. And they made some negotiation roles. But I was not expecting one of my mousy players to step up with this. I'm, I'm shortening the speech. Love. Speech about how love trumps everything. And this is the wizard saying that love trumps magic. Yeah. So I'm like, so I got to the end of that. And I'm like, all right, this was so much better. By the way, they get out of the city. Because you can only find the city with one of the ghosts, the armies completely march past them. So yeah. they're not being followed by the army anymore. And in true player character fashion, they figure, okay, let's go hunt the army, which became the next part of the campaign. Okay. Back up a half step. Yes. Impassioned speech about love. Yes. The gods went, hmm, did they let the character leave? Oh, yeah. That wasn't, so they said, okay, fine, you can go. It's yeah, all be, about love. Yeah, because one of because one of the things that the players did not know was that, and this is actually in the adventure, uh, is that one of the things is that if she finds somebody who truly loves her for being her and she shows love in return, that then they'll let her go. Ding. But she didn't know that and the players didn't know yeah. that. But the players just played up to, and, event, and she eventually ended up marrying one of the players and settling down, helping, this is the campaign with the, if there's 3.5, if you were a dragonborn, you were literally a human turning into a dragon. So yeah. he, he eventually became a dragon, married the girl who's half magical snake lizard girl. Sure, and, sure, yeah. As you do. And they settled down and, and ruled the country. So that was the end of the Sounds campaign. Sounds like an anime. Remember we talked about how to end a campaign? That yeah, was the, yeah. That same campaign. Awesome. Like but, 150 sessions long? Oh, more than that. Yeah, it was th three years of weekly sessions. More than three years of weekly sessions. So yeah. I guess 150 yeah. is about what it was. Yeah. Anyway, that was a campaign. Everybody threw in their emotional hat. They completely changed what I thought they were going to do. It's where I began to realize that as a player group, they were becoming much more heroic. They, they wanted to be more heroic. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they were like, we should stop being murder hobos and go and be good guys. And they hadn't good ever folks, been murder. People. They had never been super murder hobo-y, but they stopped being completely materialistic at this point. Mm -hmm. And they were much more interested in... Um, dramatic storytelling? Dramatic storytelling. One of the characters spent the a, whole, a whole week as they would find scrolls. He just sat down and copied the scrolls over that he could bring the history of this, of this place back to the rest of the world well, and lost this city. They, they were more interested in storytelling at yeah. that point. Yeah. yeah. And it was just a legacy. They, uh, and then they took out an army and beat them. This was also the campaign where I had eight players, each of whom had their own pet NPC by the time this campaign was <laughs> over with. Uh, Not pet, everybody had an NPC. Sure. And yeah. This, this was, this is where they picked up the princess. Yeah. It was an odd campaign full of people that had weird skills. But storytelling became a big thing there. I just leaned back because I knew what the, what the, I mean, this is a, like a four page adventure. Yeah. Yeah. There are no rules there for what to do. I mean, if the players try to fight these small gods, they're in trouble. Yeah. Cause they're like, they're like ninth level characters. And these things are like, are like hit dice 20 creatures and there's three of them, but they were going to try it. And to be honest, knowing my players, I wasn't completely sure that the gods could take them because <laughs> they'd done, they'd done sillier things like of that course. before. Um, yeah. Which is part of the fun, <laughs> but I also did not expect them to throw to throw love up as a as a motivating factor. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Which also told me what else I could do with that campaign from that point on. Here's the thing: 
if you give the players opportunities to try stuff, be creative, think outside the box, if you just kind of let them go, they will surprise you with some of the interesting shit they come up with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because they're never going to do what you think they would do. Exactly. They're individuals, right? They, they have their own ideas. And even the thing that they think is the most common thing to do is probably not the thing that you think is the most common thing to do. Yep. It's, it's also the idea of looking at your player character's motivations and what they're actually interested in. And that is part of um, it. I mean, I knew I had a bunch of players who were interested in things like history. And I also knew that, like, I'll be honest, the ghost, follow the ghost dog wasn't super surprising. I mean, let's be honest, Chris. Everybody's following the ghost dog. In your, in your campaign, if you toss the ghost dog I'm, in front of Bridget, I'm, we're following the ghost dog. I'm following the ghost yeah, dog. Following I'm, like, dog. I'm following ghost? the dog. Yeah, why exactly. is that ghost dog wandering around over there? I mean, like, that's weird. Because that goes to that whole, like, uh, weird, not necessarily horror, but just weird in general. Like, uh, we talked about that in our off the cuff before we recorded. It, it's it's a thing. It's like, oh, look, it's a ghost, but it's a dog, and it's walking over there, and it's probably, you know, got a story hook to it. Yeah. So You've I'm taken go- something mundane, yeah. you've twisted it to add something weird to it. Okay, hey, look, it's a dog. Oh, but it's a ghost. Well, now i got to find out why there's a ghost dog. Exactly. <laughs> this. What's interesting is that campaign has a couple of adventures with like, a ghost dog? No, like, 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 <laughs> like the opening of the campaign is you, you encounter a bunch of giant bees that are trying to convince the players to help them fix something. Giant bees? Giant bees. Just giant talking bees? They're not even talking bees. They're just giant bees. They just fly around trying to convince you uh, to come with well, them? Well, 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 because the, the seal, the seal that can't be broken is inside of a, of a shrine uh-huh. that is being tended to by a bunch of bees. The, the, the bees have been, the, the nature goddess, the bees, they tend to it. Now that the shrine is falling apart, the bees need somebody to actually fix it. And they, and they encounter the characters. I, I got a question I got to ask yeah. about this game though before. Yeah. So these players went from being materialistic to being more interested in storytelling and what sounds like legacy to me, like yeah. legacy of the story. Yeah. How did they get there? Like, what did you do? What do you think you did that got them from point A to point B? Two things. The first was because we used central, central casting again. Um, <laughs> because and, you gave them character backstories that had meaning to them. Well, they actually picked the characters' backstories because- sure. We had run. That's what I meant well, because they had well, developed character backstories. Because we because we did the first part of the campaign, which was basically <laughs> they all die. They all died, but they knew that they were trying to get this magical seal that can't be destroyed, which got disintegrated by the beholder, um, to stop this thousand year old witch, demi goddess, yeah, from yeah. coming back. So when the next set of players came up, anything in their backstory that they could find that would tie them into that history. So if like if somebody had a tie to to a um, to an ancient weapon, that was one of the weapons that was used to stop the witch. And so they, they started out with that. So they all had a legacy to work yeah, with. Yeah, okay. mm-hmm. um, some of them had, uh, one of the characters actually, his central casting is weird stuff, was born a long time ago, several generations ago, um, but was stolen from his parents and ended up in this time. So guess who his mom was? The witch. Yes. Which gave us, which gave us some the motivation. Demi-goddess, the demigoddess witch, which gave us some, and also there were people who knew that he had uh, 10,000 years of temporal energy stored up in him. So if you bled him, you could get some magic out of it. So everybody wanted his body for magic. So we got them all having a tie-in to the campaign. So they chose this stuff, though. They, they chose they that wanted equals this. investment. They yeah, they're invested. And then I just kept adding to it as they went. Very similar to what to what you do in your, your Archmage's Legacy campaign, where everybody had a, a hook, and you kept tying that hook back into the storyline sure. where my character's granddaughter showed up. Yep. And... Bridget's character's best friend is part of the adventuring guild and brother and brother. Bob's character happens to have a, a, a minor connection to a ruling family. Um, <laughs> the, he's minor? the chosen, he's minor. the, he's the chosen one. Um, I mean, you guys said that I didn't. Yeah. That was something that they did. And I kept playing on that. Yeah. I also allowed them to, 
I watched what they did. They would come back with hordes of money and then they, they, they owned an inn in a town and would throw a party for the, they'd like blow like a third of their money every time, just hold, having a party and meeting the people of the town. So they carousing, the man. Carousing, mm-hmm. um, which also was a. There a, should be revels. Was also a chance that once in a blue moon, the bad guys also figured out there were revels and would show up to try to cause trouble. That seems like a bad idea. It went really bad the last time it happened because one of the NPCs was the daughter of one of the eight rulers of the Magelands. Yeah. I mean, and, and she was all, and this ruler was also interested in trying to capture the mage and bleed him. So she figured she was going to basically kidnap her daughter back because her daughter escaped, kidnap her daughter back and then use that to lure the players to a place where she could have the advantage. So she has her minions grab the daughter. The kobold sees this and tells the other player in the party that he sees this. The only two people that see this. The kobold can move fast. The other player had like boots of speed, which I'd forgotten he had. So he can outrun a horse. Yeah, that, that didn't go so well for them. And so a bunch of like eighth level flunkies, like 12 of them have got this, have got the girl and a 14th level paladin catches up to him. It goes poorly for the eighth level flunkies, I'm sure. So by the time they got back to where the mother was, instead of having a captive daughter and a bunch of eighth level flunkies, she's got the entire party geared up and ready to go. And that fight lasted three rounds. Yeah. Originally, this was going to be a big epic scene, but instead they'd done all the stuff to make it work for them. And that was one thing. So I'm not going to boost your hit points up. I'm going to let them have this fight. They took her down. The aftermath of that, you talk about aftermath, was that now who's in charge of her country? Oh boy. The princess, right? The princess who doesn't want it. Oh. So what they, what she did instead was they, they made a deal that her uncle, she's like, this is what I want, uncle. All I want is my mother's library. Give me the library and you could have the rest of the kingdom to yourself. She took all the grimoires and everything else like that with her. Okay, that sounds like a reasonable thing. Like, what ruler wouldn't say, I'll give up this piece to hold the, to hold the country, and I'll just denounce my, my, my holding the crown Except entirely. the library is like the most powerful thing that they own. Well, yeah, but her uncle didn't know that, unfortunately. Yeah, sure. So, so those are the kind of things we did. That's what I did, is every time they came up with an idea for something, I just made it part of the campaign. There were enough loose ends floating around that we could have, you know, oh, you know, my character has a power, is, is the son of a dragon. Um, is there a powerful dragon in the world, in the world anywhere nearby? Uh, yeah. The most powerful dragon. Yeah. Yes. Of course there is. Yeah. You know, we're going to go 15 minutes ago. There wasn't. Yeah. But now there is. Well, I think it's more like five seconds ago. There <laughs> yeah. wasn't. Now there is. Everything we did was big and epic. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's epic fantasy over mm-hmm. the top. It was 3.5, which handled that pretty well. I guess. It Plus did. Something it does. like that. It, it does. does. As soon fine. as you, it's like a snowball rolling downhill, yeah. right? They start having fun with where they are. And one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And it just. You stuck the legacy stuff in there, right? Like yeah. they were very connected to the story of the, of the, of the setting. Yep. If they're that connected to the story of the setting, then they want to interact with it and do stuff with it. I think the other thing we did was that anytime there was a, there's something going on in this town, somebody's son is missing. What's well, gotta be one of the player characters. Every time I just would toss that out there and I would pull the character, like I've got an idea for a scenario and it needs to have somebody who son went missing when they were a child. Yeah, can I be, yes, you can be that son. We're going to bring that story in here. That was the other thing is whenever I had an idea for something. Went and talked to the players about it. Yep. But try to get them involved in it so that they were involved in every adventure. Yeah. You got buy-in from the players, mm-hmm. which helped keep them invested. But there's a, a very specific methodology yep. to get buy-in. One, yep. there's the central casting stuff. And then it was taking that background information and tying it very specifically yep. into what was going on yep. in the campaign. Two, it was whenever you had an idea for a scenario, you wouldn't talk to the players and be like, hey, do you want to be this character that I have this idea for the scenario for? And they're like, yes, please, thank you. Mm-hmm. And when opportunities arose for them to 
have impacts and effects and decisions about the world at large, which would help mold it, you let them make those decisions or mm -hmm. have a hand in making those decisions, which gave them authorship over the game. Mm -hmm. Those three things together sound like what I was asking is like, how did you get them to go from one to the other? And that's how you do that. Those are three great ways to do that. Sound about right? Sound about right. Someday I'll talk about the horrible mistakes I made, but not tonight. <laughs> <laughs> that's a tale for another side. All right, Bob. But Bob. But, yeah. Yeah. What so got, the, what I want to bring up is um, the most recent session we had in Chris's Archmage's Legacy campaign. This is a favorite moment? This is a favorite moment for me. Hell yeah. It was, it was the set piece boss fight. All right. We are going army to army against this elemental demony type guy who has basically corrupted a kingdom of dwarves and surrounding creatures like ogres and, and, uh, um, some of the tieflings from my character's home kingdom and basically growing this army to try and take over the world because who doesn't want to take over the world? Especially magma earth demon elemental things yes exactly giant magma earth elemental demon things yes who's got a uh, an artifact on his head that's part of five pieces to a giant artifact that is world changing now, yes if you are thinking of the route of seven parts i may have you know borrowed you the idea a few ideas come on man it's the mcguffin hunt event it's the mcguffin hunt there campaign you go. get and over you've it you gotta have a mcguffin hunt i haven't done one like ever yeah. so long story short we find a way to circumvent getting into the castle while our armies are fighting outside and myself and my companions and a few other people from the army, we sneak in, we end up confronting the bad guy in the throne room of this dwarven S castle. Sneak in while the other, the main part of the army is being a distraction and getting murdered. Yes. Um, unfortunately we had to lose some people in the process, but it was for the greater good and they, they will be remembered. And nobody was named. That is true. However. They're all just moots. That's a terrible way to look at it. I, I think we should specify <laughs> that the army volunteer, the, the army was was outnumbered, outgunned, and knew that if they didn't stop yeah, this bad this was guy, the, this is the most reasonable plan. Yes. yes, that this was the and the army knew like we are going to do this so that this small group of heroes can go in and finish this, or we're all dead. Yes, and in the game, in meta, they were all mooks, but in the campaign world, their names are known and they will be remembered. True facts. They're your people. They're my people. So, and the deep gnomes people and the deep gnomes and, and a couple of dwarves, well, one, the yeah. prince, but anyhow, so we go in and we get to this climactic fight in the throne room. Well, this demon dude, he has a, an ability that is basically a reverse gravity in an area of effect. As soon as he's bloodied, by the way, still using bloodied in fifth edition. Yeah. Which bloodied is a great trigger condition for stuff. Fantastic trigger condition. It's for good stuff. time. So we go in and we are just kind of letting it all hang out. Boss fight, right? Mm -hmm. So we start hitting this guy with everything we've got and there are his minions in the room, just kind of chaos ensues as everything starts to, take, to, to go down. We hit him hard and fast. We got him to bloodied and he flips the, the gravity and all of a sudden everybody's losing their saving, missing their saving throws <laughs> and we're all going 50 feet up to the ceiling. 50? 50 if you were in the room, 40 if you're outside. Yes. So all of a sudden my character among all these others he was kind of in the middle of the room, bam, straight up to the ceiling, and he's stuck there, right? People on the edges had the opportunity because Chris had this set piece where there were statues along the sides. Gigantic statues. Gigantic statues along the sides of this throne room. So if you were over near the statues, you could make a check and see if you grab onto one of the statues to prevent from falling all the way. Some people were able to take advantage of that. I, however, was not. No, no, he wasn't. So here I am on the ceiling. 
I realized after the fact I missed an amazing pulp scene there. I should have used my whip to grab one of the statues. You should have. I didn't even think about that. Oh, afterwards. that's right. You could have. Jerry's character does the whip thing. That would have been epically fun. I would have been like, yeah, sure. Why not? It makes you sense. You know what? I think it's better that, that, that I didn't because what happened next was pretty epic. Yeah. So uh, to compound matters, um, the big bad head uh, at that point, was it after I hit the ceiling or right before I hit the ceiling? After you hit the ceiling. After I hit the ceiling, he throws a, a glob of magma. Spits a glob of magma. Spits a glob of magma at me. Um, so he hits me with the magma. It's it's me, the magma on the ceiling. We're burning. Um, for me, it's the floor. I'm laying there prone because when you fall like that and you miss your save, you end up prone. Now, here's the thing. A lot of characters, a lot of players, I should say, would get into a situation like that and they'd be like, uh, I'm prone on the ceiling and I'm in the middle of this big fight. So they would do things like, I'm going to stand up from prone and then start doing something to try and like move over to where the statues are. So when he flips gravity again, I can get a hold of the statue, things like that. I was like, okay, I could go make a, make a move, but here's the thing. This is the, the big bad guy. We hit him hard. If we keep hitting him hard, we've got a chance to put this guy down quick and maybe save some lives in this room that might otherwise die if the fight is protracted. So I'm thinking about continuing the fight from the position I'm in instead of trying to save my ass. Now, some would think that's foolish. Part of me does think that that is slightly foolish. I that, thought it was foolish. Chris and Jerry are both raising their no, hands. <laughs> no, I think that is that is completely in character I for Candor. I thought it was foolish, but it is completely oh, in character it's, for Candor. It's, it's foolish as hell, but <laughs> yeah. it's also in character for in character for Candor. It is definitely when, in character. When you decided to not just stand up, when you decided to just keep fighting, that did not surprise me at all. I think my, my question was, you're going to lightning bolt him from the floor? And you're like, yes. Yes. Instead of standing up and doing anything like that, I threw another lightning bolt at him because we just leveled up before this. And I got lightning bolt and I'm like, this is, this is like my big hitter now. And this guy is susceptible, Lightning bolt. Lightning bolt. he's susceptible to lightning, which is good. So I'm like, I got to hit him again. I got to hit him again and I'll deal with quote unquote, the fallout. Ha ha ha. <laughs> if gravity goes back to normal when it happens, because who knows when it's going to happen? Like maybe I'll have a chance to do something about, it. so I said, screw it. And I said, let's do this. Um, and of course I hit him hard. The turn comes around to him again. He flips gravity back. I hit the floor, fail my save again. The magna magma comes from the ceiling, lands on top of me, and I'm down. I go down with the fall. The magma hits me. Now I've got two automatic death saves. So one death save, and I'm done. Game over for Kander. It's a good thing your cleric likes you. And the funniest part in my mind is this literally happened earlier in the war in one of the previous set piece fights, I went up against the general of their army in that sector and he hit me, knocked me down to zero and then hit me again, two death saves. And we looked at the turn order and the cleric was coming up before him. And I looked and I went, oh crap, two death saves. And I looked at the initiative because Chris has little, little cards hanging off his laptop with the initiative order. And I'm looking at where it is and I'm like, Oh, Carrie's coming up before him. <laughs> I'll survive this maybe. I'm like, I hope she has enough movement to get in here. As, as a flashback to this week's um, uh, off the cuff that we had, that's that's a perfect example of good in-game metagaming. Yes. No, good in-game. Yeah, from last week's episode. Yes. So luckily for me, Bridget, her cleric, Carrie, comes into the room. 
throws some healing on me, gets me back up. And I can't remember what he did, but it comes back around to me again. I hit him with another lightning spell because I had a uh, witch bolt. I hit him with a witch bolt and I blow him away, finish him off. He, he tried to kill Jen's character, the yeah. dragonborn. That's right. Because Jen's character finally got in there to actually get, get up in his grill. Jen's character went before Carrie mm-hmm. and Carrie was like, get in there and distract him so I can heal Kander. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so she goes in there for the distraction. The distraction works. I get healed. I ended up getting the kill shot on this guy. And it's, there's a running thing now where I am surviving stuff that I shouldn't be surviving. Mm-hmm. And it's making the soldiers in my army think that I am unkillable, which is bad. <laughs> it's good, but it's bad. He's the chosen one. They've started calling me the chosen one. Candor the unkillable. Candor the unkillable. Um, my little sister is like, you know, Candor can't die. And it's like, no. That was, that was said. Yeah. <laughs> that, was a, that was a scene. It's a good thing I wasn't there for da- it because. Dad was like, your dad was like, you got to stop doing that. Yeah. So your, your mom was like, Oh, he's a hero. Leave him alone, honey. It was really yeah, funny. Mom's mom's wrong. Dad's right. <laughs> but, uh, it, there, there are so many different things about this particular moment. The set piece that Chris put together was very well done. He had all of the pieces in place. Here's the anti-gravity effect, but there's ways that you can get around it. You got the statues. If you were near the doorway, you could grab the door frame, stuff like that. Um, we had characters, um, Jen was outside the door. She's a dragonborn. She has a tail. We had a couple of characters grab her tail to help steady themselves and get themselves ready for, for the drop. Fictional positioning matters. Fictional positioning. Fictional it's, positioning matters. Good times. And it, it, it turned into another epic candor moment, which it, honestly it shouldn't have. <laughs> I should have been dead. You almost were. But it happened. Um, it's not the easiest thing in the world to kill characters in fifth edition. You get, no. some, you get some chances. Yeah, we do. We do get some opportunities, which is good. That double death save thing, though, that is, I, I actually really like it. Isn't it terrifying? It's terrifying yeah. as hell because it puts the fear of death into you, and it it makes it so that you're, you're hopefully a little less cavalier. I still do some things, but I don't do them in a cavalier manner. I do them very um, purposefully, and again, they're not the smartest thing to do. But this particular character has a history now of, of acting in a certain way that's like, I need to do this for my people. He's going to die at some point and, and everyone's going to look around at each other and be like, wow, that was really sad, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but here's the thing. After this was all over and I had time to ruminate on it, okay, Kander has had a moment. Kander has realized that he's been running around doing these things and saying, it's for my people, it's for my people, but... It's, it's really kind of selfish. He's not doing it selfishly, but it's still kind of selfish. And I don't know where he's going to go yet, but the next encounter that we have where swords are drawn and magic starts flying, I got a feeling that it might be weird (laughs) because he's starting to think. And up until now, he hasn't been doing a lot of like super thinking. He's been just kind of going on gut. Like I have to do this for my people and and like, this is, this is what must be done and all that crap like that. Was that because your dad got in your head? It, the, the, that was an emotional moment. But I think the one that, that, that hit me harder was the one that I actually wasn't there for was my little sister talking to Carrie and, and, uh, and Rayanne. Yes. About how he can't be killed. And it's like, <laughs> oh man, that's going to crush her if I go down. Like, 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 oh, like. <laughs> 
So if I'm going to be unkillable, I have to be unkillable because I'm not putting myself in a position to be killed flagrantly or frivolously. But there's some, there's some introspection going on now with that character. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that, that, that moment, that was a good set piece. It was a tense fight. Um, even though we hit the guy hard and fast, um, he still, he did a lot of damage. Um, unfortunately for his minions, he took a bunch of his minions out himself because, you know, friendly fire, who cares? Yeah. They're his minions. And, and those minions were just turned people that yes. could have been turned back at some point. Yeah. It's rough. And that was kind of sad because one of them was a close friend of my character. I saw him standing in the room there and I'm like, oh, I Jer- hope I get a chance. Jerry's character something. just fireballed all those people to death, <laughs> which is fine. Like it, it was a war, right? Like these yep. things happen. We had to stop them. And was- you know what? Fireball is a, uh, is, is a fire cleanses. Fire cleanses all. <laughs> fire cleanses. Well, it's also, more, it's, it's more than that. I think the thing I say about candor is that candor, at least this has been my take on candor, is that candor can't not be that guy. Like when stuff comes up and the shit hits the fan, candor can't not be heroic. It's not in his nature. He may talk about it, but when things come up, candor ends up stepping up every single time and almost killing himself every single time. Because Kander believes that it's what has to be done right now. I'm curious as to see what happens when Kander decides that he can't do that because of this whole situation. He's almost died three times yeah. now. So it'll be interesting to see how Kander changes because of that. And because somebody has pointed it out to him. Yeah. I, I Like I said, he's, he's thinking about it for sure. It's in his head now. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, we won't know what's going to happen until the next time there's a fight. Yeah, right? <laughs> then we'll see if Kander like does the same thing that he's yeah, always yeah, whenever exactly. he changes. It may be just instinct takes over and it may be, it may be, he may do something, he may hesitate to his own detriment, which would be worse. <laughs> so I think it's interesting that a series of encounters and fights, especially this last one, has put a thought process into your head for how you might want to change the way that you play the character going forward and, and the aftermath of that. Because it, it's hit me too, because... Kander has almost died a bunch of times mm-hmm. and character death is like a real thing in this world. It's hard. It's not hard to resurrect somebody, but you need the right stuff. You can't just yep. come up with a true resurrection spell and 5,000 mm-hmm. pieces of gold dust, essentially, or a diamond dust, essentially. It's fascinating to me that that's, that's how you're going to play the character out going forward. And in mm-hmm. fact, it might be a thing that we could talk about for what you want to get inspiration for, which way that you play it. Or if like when that moment comes up that you tell me like, I'm choosing to do this because of this and I will just give you inspiration for it. And then that'll be like a thing that you get inspiration for going forward. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Because you should marry, we should try to marry some of that stuff to mechanics because that makes it more impactful. Oh, Not that it can't yes. just be a story on its own. Yeah. Yeah. You have any thoughts about that whole situation, Jerry? I'm interested to see where it goes with, with Candor. For a good chunk of this campaign, Candor's had a pretty good grasp on what's going on with it. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested. I'm, I'm enjoying watching the evolution of the campaign, the story to see where it's going. I think that out of all the players, Bob put the most thought into his backstory. And as the game has evolved each week, he's put the most effort into continuing to develop that backstory and how it ties into the campaign world. I mean, you want to talk about a slow build for a thing, right? Like yeah. I've been seeding the fact that there was going to be a war in Alvar, which is Bob's character's mm-hmm. Candor's home country, his, his home city state since session one, essentially yeah. since yep. the very first time he got a letter from his sister. Yep. So, I mean, that's, and this is session 12. So it's been 12 sessions in coming. We play like every other week and we don't play yeah. every week, every yeah. other week all the time. So it's been like nine months in coming. And the way it got resolved really worked well in, in a, as both a storytelling motif and as a character building motif. Mm-hmm. And there are long lasting consequences of what happened. And there will be some, yeah. 
And there's some positive, positive ones too. The other thing I took away from the whole conversation with your sister was not just the conversation about the fact that she doesn't want you to die, but her whole feeling about like not living up to what you were. Like the idea that, yeah. she, that, that during the battle they made it because she's the youngest sister. She's a 13 year old girl, yeah. right? But yeah. she has the ability to, to teleport around like Nightcrawler. Yeah. But her family made her stay behind so that she didn't die. And, no, she ran away. But she ran away. Yeah. And, and I'll be honest, I, my character wasn't there because the other thing I would have said was, you know, the other problem you have, and this is something that, this is actually something that um, my character actually has, has a little bit of feeling about, is like when you're fighting alongside the, your more vulnerable family members, it can be a distraction for what you need to do in the, in the battle. It's true. She may have actually helped like her family do better by not being there. Probably. Because if her mom and her sister who had to fight a freaking ice dragon. No, um, it's, or, uh, Earth, Earth Onyx dragon. Earth Onyx dragon. Probably was easier to do that without having to worry about where our 13-year-old is at this point that, right that's now. That's probably yep. very true. Um, so I don't think that running away was necessarily the worst thing. No, in the world. not for her. I mean, but you but know, in her she, mind, in her mind, yeah. she feels terrible that she ran when everybody when else was fighting. Everybody yeah. else was fighting, and her big brother, who can't be killed, was in there doing his <laughs> thing. And I want to be like him. And it's like, oh, <laughs> it struck me um, at some point over the weekend, and I, I can't remember exactly when. But like I said, the thought process started running through his head. Like you may not be acting selfishly; you may be doing it for the kingdom. But ultimately, it's becoming about you. Yeah, man, it's your hubris, right? And it's not about you. It's never been about you, but it's becoming that. And it's like, that's probably not a good thing for a lot of people. It's an interesting paradox in some ways, yeah. right? It's good to have a hero yep. until it's not. Because like, having a hero can lift a kingdom to heights that they didn't think they could get to, right? Yep. Um, it can keep an army going. When they think, you know, all hope is lost, it can turn the tide of a battle, but it can also crush the hell out of them. I mean, Elvar could have, I'll, I'll be flat out, Elvar would not have won this without. The Crosswater Adventuring Company? No, yeah. of course not. Yeah. 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 And that's the other thing. It's not just me. Or it's if they, myself and my three companions. Yep. And they've all been very instrumental, especially Carrie. <laughs> Our healer. <laughs> By the way, like there's a timeline of events that if you don't go to Alvar of what happens, the final thing in the timeline is Alvar falls. Yeah. Yeah. If you didn't show up and do something about it, that's what would have happened. Yep. Mm -hmm. And who knows who would have survived from the royal family. So that's a thing. I, I think that's an interesting conversation of how like one heroes, like what, what does a hero actually do for a country? And I will have to think about that some more. I've already started thinking <laughs> about it your impact on, on events and how it's affecting mm -hmm. your family and whatnot. But I didn't, haven't thought about how it affects the country as a whole, especially cause you're about to leave. Like that's a thing. Yes. And that's something that I hadn't taken into account. Like I'm doing all of this for the kingdom and I'm going to turn around, I'm going to get on a boat and I'm going to fly into space. I mean, <laughs> yes, that's going to happen. But there, it's not just you're leaving the kingdom though, because you have reestablished some, a strong level of security the kingdom did not have because the biggest threat to the kingdom is now gone. There are still threats out there, but the biggest threat to the kingdom is now gone and you've established strong allied ties to a lot of the local, to, yes. to three different groups that have all formed a mutual assurance pact back and forth with each other. Yep, the Not a hundred percent sure about the, uh, the Solus clan of tieflings. Oh, I even think about that. I was thinking <laughs> the dwarves, the deep gnomes and the people of Kingshaven because yeah. of the, um, oh, that's right. Yeah. Kingshaven. Yeah. That's what I was looking at yeah. too. It's never, that's never going to be perfect, but you definitely left that place 
stronger and more durable than it was when you were there to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And so the giant and, hole in the ice rink. Yeah. And there's a giant <laughs> hole in the ice rink. The dragon brought up through their ice rink. There's an fixed. ice rink. They play hockey. Yeah. My, it's my, so my good. people like to play hockey. Tieflings. Yes. Like to play hockey. Yes. As it is. And, and, any goat, lots of goat. I feel the same way. I think that there's definitely some repercussions, but I still think that the kingdom is probably safer now than it has been in your generation. So as a game master, right? Like if we're going to talk about like, like the game mastering stuff that's uh, surrounds this whole conversation. Mm -hmm. One, the world is a living world, but a character, like the, the characters can impact how the world goes by their actions. Mm -hmm. In fact, Bob has been impacting the world and his country the entire time. He wanted to set up a, um, embassy. He successfully on his way to doing that. He brokered a, a deal with deep gnomes. He helped save the kingdom with his friends from the, a terrible demon and made the dwarves his allies. He brought in somebody that could help cure all the people that have been turned. This is a contact of his. So while the world is living, the characters are a central moving force in the world, which is good. They should be the main characters of the story, right? Good. And they should yes. have some impact on the things that they put their, put their hands into. So it, it comes with a lot of thought though, right? Like mm -hmm. how do you, how do you think about these things and make these things work? So you have to think about how you're setting functions in a lot of ways. There's some like geopolitical stuff that I had to like really think out about how these people work and then make choices based on the actions that were took. And that's not like the easiest thing to teach people how to do. You just have to like think of what's the most re reasonable, realistic moment and what people and organizations want. It's no different than NPCs, right? Organizations and countries are no different than NPCs. They have wants and needs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if you can figure out what their wants and needs are and then how they can go about getting them, you can really make those things work. For instance, the Solus clan wants to be part of Alvar again. The Solus clan are tieflings that are fused with fire elementals. That's how tieflings got to be tieflings in this world to begin with. And uh, they're thought to be very dangerous and destructive and fiery tempered for and those they reasons. they tend to kind of act that way. They do. <laughs> and one of them uh, made a deal with Bob's sister to be married to Bob's, not the younger one, the older one. Older sister, because she lost a one-on-one -on -one fight, which the sister is actually the better fighter between her and her and Bob. So that should tell you something right there. <laughs> and that's like another geopolitical thing, which the players, by the way, we're not very happy with me. Like, can we just win? Can we just win one? I'm like, yeah, but like, I like drama too. Like, let me have my drama. I guys give you guys your drama all the time. <laughs> that happened, by the yeah. way, we yeah. had that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> all right. The thing that I would take from that is like one, let your players affect what's going on in the world too. And let it be big at times. We just talked about that in your game, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And two, like, think about the geopolitical aspects of your campaign if you have that as part of your campaign, which I do. Like, mm -hmm. I had a prince of a country. There was geopolitical things. The Crosswater Adventuring Company is a, in a lot of ways, a political, not tool, but politically pushed thing. Because you can't be an adventuring company in this world without having a king of one of the two major countries sign off on you being an adventuring company. Yeah. Like an actual adventuring yeah. company. The geopolitical thing is really important. It's As a GM, it's something that I always... That even if it never comes into the world. We've never talked about it on yeah. the show before. Yeah. Not once. I, I think about it a lot. That I think about what's going on in the world. How does each situation, whether it's big or small, does the effect of wiping out the Thieves Guild in town actually mean yeah, to I that know. town? Who's filling the vacuum? Yeah. Who's going to fill the vacuum? Um, what happens when the players, you know, kill the dragon? What else happens in that, in that area? That sort of thing. Um, and it bothers me when I'm reading a published world and... It's obvious that that hasn't been taken into account mm -hmm. when you can't account for things that don't work or when it, you've only got bare bones things that, that, that are at odds with each other. Yeah. So you always have to be thinking about what, what happens next. You know, even in that old campaign I talked about there, you know, 
what happens when you bump off the queen who's going to take over there yeah, who's taking over especially that? when two of the characters in the party are possible heirs to the kingdom yep what do you do with that i i cheated out the players called their own solution but yeah we should do an episode on on geo geopolitics you put a pin in, in, in your role-playing games if, and how you can like make it so it's not like a ton of work yeah like you can just figure it out as you go kind mm -hmm. of thing there we go. There we go. There we go. Uh, I don't have anything else to say about that. Anybody else? I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes next. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it just keeps getting ramped up. Every, every week it just, this, this is much like the Ox game. Every session, it just gets bigger and better and more complex and more fulfilling. Like you walk out of there with strong, strong, strong dungeon feels. Dungeon feels? Yeah. You feel good. It's oh, a, okay. Yeah. Do we want to do the conversation corner in the after show? Because we went so long. It's, we've been at this for like an hour and 20. I'm good if we want. We can yeah. keep it. We can keep it short. But All right, we should, cool. But first, I will talk to you about another show on the Misdirected Mark Network. In Thacko with Advantage, Ange and Jared talk about RPGs and D&D. They love talking about RPGs and D&D. Together, they're going to share insights into the games they're running in the campaign journal and then tackle a variety of topics that affect the, ga the game in the DM's workshop. They're going to talk anyway, so you might as well record it and listen to what they're going to say. Maybe you'll even pick up an ancient D&D factoid about a previous edition of the game that you'll never use. I am there to t give all of those factoids. This is a radio announcer guy. <laughs> I, I'm, I love talking about old factoids in D&D that mean nothing like Thaco. Yay, factoids. Seriously, though, they talk about all editions of D&D. They do a really good job. They have some great insight. You're talking about two uh, great longstanding game masters with a lot of input and a lot of things to share. They did a whole two-parter on the the one D&D playtest material. Mm-hmm. They're, they're gonna they're gonna go do an easier one after that because they're like wiped out from from doing that. <laughs> Jared wrote like three different reviews on the D and D one playtest material on his blog, so yeah. you should read those too. Yeah. So it's Thacko with advantage. Listen to it on the Mister Mark podcast wherever your fine podcasts are sold. Why don't we do some Patreon shoutouts now before we get out of here? Yeah, let's uh, give a fine shout out to the old school DM, our very own Mad Wizard Sean Merwin, Troy Sandlin, Zach Goins, Carlos Martin, Chris Constantine. Cindy Moore, Eric Simon, Mirko Frolik, and Andrew Demps. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can get more content like this at misdirectedmark.com. That is the website. There we have over 1,300 podcast episodes. Damn. So many episodes on our various shows. And if that isn't enough, our Patreon has hundreds of bonus episodes at patreon.com slash MMP. And those 1,300 episodes include some of the other shows on the Mark Network, such as They're a Super Geek. Mastering Dungeons, Bone, Stone, and Obsidian, Hannah's Talking Games, The Gnome Cast, Bonus Experience, the all-new Thacko with Advantage, and the amazing back episodes of She's a Super Geek. And if that's still enough content for you, I suggest checking out our sibling podcasts, Tabletop Bellhop, The Knights of the Night, and the all-new GM Mastermind. You know, you can also leave us some feedback, especially about your favorite gaming moments. We'd love to hear about them. Yeah. You can reach us directly using the weird old archaic email at mmp at misdirectedmark.com. You could also go to Twitter. The show in the network is at misdirected Mark. The guy that's sitting to my left that you can't see is Robert M. Everson, who has not come up with a weird name in a long time, and I <laughs> suggest he does next week, or there's going to be hell to pay. <laughs> I'll just say get off my lawn. Wait, 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 wait. Robert, the chosen one, Emerson. Ro Robert, the chosen one, em Emerson. <laughs> I don't think that that'll get the Twitter that you want. Like the Twitter. Probably not. Yeah. Yeah. But it's close. Uh, across from me, who's, who's making really funny jokes, is GM Gerrymander. I am the Light 101, where you can get your smooth jazz all day long. And missing from this festive evening of podcasting is D at DNA Phil. He's not here. All right. Hey, uh, you remember that Patreon that we mentioned earlier with the hundreds of bonus episodes? If you want to support us and the other shows from Misdirected Mark Productions, 
You can do that at patreon.com slash MMP. We would really appreciate it. We would. Your patronage is going to get you access to the After Show podcast, our show notes, the Bamboo Lounge podcast, and other special releases when we have them. Can I say, it's just $1. $1 gets you access to the, the podcast stuff. Yeah. Like the extra podcast. More money will get you other things, but that $1 is for the After Show and the Bamboo Lounge. Only one Eddie. Good stuff. This has been a Mr. Mark production. The media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop. We out.